Thanksgiving. Jeez Louise, where has the time gone? I can't believe it's tomorrow. And besides thinking about the food, of course, don't lie to yourself. Everyone's thinking about food tomorrow. One of my favorite parts about the holidays is that you get to think about the year as a whole, the good, the bad, and seeing God's grace through all of it. Because I think sometimes when you're in the middle of it, it's hard to see it. Maybe not. Maybe it's just me, depending on certain situations. But it is a time of year again, for sure. So I guess what's left to be said is cue the music. One question, one topic, multiple perspectives for each one. You are listening to the Young Catholic Podcast. Cue the drum roll in your head, and I'm going to kind of do it. I don't know if you can hear it. But the question for the weeks to come is, how should we read the Bible? I have three incredible interviewees that I speak to, including two priests, one being a Dominican friar and a biblical scholar. Today, in particular, I am speaking with Father Gregory Pine. For those who are fans of one of my favorite podcasts, Pines with Aquinas, this name should sound familiar to you because he has been on quite a few episodes. To be quite honest, I felt like I was talking to a celebrity because I've heard him on so many podcasts and in videos, so this was quite surreal for me. Father Gregory Pine serves presently as Assistant Director of Campus Outreach for the Thomistic Institute. Born and raised near Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, he attended the Franciscan University of Steubenville, studying mathematics and humanities. Upon graduating, he entered the Order of Preachers in 2010. He was ordained a priest in 2016 and holds a licentiate in sacred theology from the Dominican House of Studies. He has published articles in Nova et Vetera, The Thomist, and Angelicum. He is also a regular contributor to the podcast Pints with Aquinas and Godsplaining. So let's do this. Is the Bible a collection of books that one should read in order? Specifically, is it practical to read the Bible from beginning to end, or should it be read differently? Sure. Excellent question. Uh, so the word Bible comes from the Greek tabiblia, which means the books. Um, so in a certain sense, it is a collection of books or a canon, um, another Greek word, canon, which just means like standard or rule. Um, so the Bible is an assemblage of books that have been authoritatively judged as you know, pertaining to uh, revelation in peculiar fashion. Um, but in a certain sense, it's also one book because it has a kind of authorial integrity, which is to say that all of the scriptures are inspired by God. So, you know, breathed uh, by the Holy Spirit, as it were. So, so God is the principal author of the sacred scriptures. And even though there are different human authors or instrumental authors, it is God 
who directs the authorship of the entire text. Uh, and in as much as that text tells one story, it's a story with authorial integrity and narrative integrity. Uh, so it tells a story of salvation history, which history culminates in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, uh, who is the only begotten of the Father. Uh, and so all of Scripture should be read in light of that fact. Um, so being Christian, says uh, Pope Benedict XVI, is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty ideal, uh, but is an event, an encounter with a person, which imparts to life a new direction, excuse me, a new horizon and a decisive direction. So all of Scripture should be read in and through Christ. Uh, and so I think there's a kind of priority accorded to the Gospels, not in so much as there's like a kind of canon within the canon or that we would trivialize other books of the Bible as somehow less Christ-based, but that everything in the Old Testament speaks of Christ who is to come in the New. Um, so like the you know figurative sense, the spiritual senses of the Old Testament just is the literal sense of the New Testament, something that's often repeated by Father Anthony Jambroni. And so uh, the sense with the scripture is that the scripture is being given to you by the tradition. I mean, it's being given to you by God, but mediated by the tradition. And the tradition is making kind of author authoritative judgments as to how we read the text. Um, and and it's it is the case and it has been decided that we read the we read the text in light of Christ. Um, so should you read the Bible in order? I mean, you can. You don't have to. Um, I think that it's good to read in the Bible at different points. So like the one-year Bible will divide up Old Testament wisdom texts and New Testament. So that way you're reading in all the parts of the Bible and you're looking for connections that obtain among. And certainly if you start at the beginning, it can sometimes be difficult to make your way through. Um, so Leviticus, Deuteronomy, or Leviticus numbers and Deuteronomy can be, can prove difficult for folks. And then you get to like First and Second Chronicles, which are also a little bit laborious. So, yes, it can be – sometimes it will be like a wet blanket on an otherwise good intention if you start from the beginning. So personally, I mean in my own prayer, I just read the Gospels kind of like on a Lectio Continua, and then I'll read the whole Bible over the course of a few years as kind of background reading. Uh, so, yes, the answer is, is it practical to read the Bible from the beginning to the end? Uh, it is, yes. Um, should it be read differently? Well, I think you can read it that way, but you should also read it um, – uh, you know, like you should approach the Gospels and then the letters of St. Paul with a kind of peculiar intensity, a peculiar attention that affords you greater entry into the Old Testament. Yeah. How do we know that the Bible is based on actual events and not myths? Right. Uh, so the Bible is written according to a variety of literary genre. Uh, and so like in the church's tradition, specifically in the 19th and 20th century, you've had these ecclesial documents that have come out. Uh, like Providentissimus Deus or Defini Flantis Spiritu, uh, or even like documents from the Pontifical Biblical Commission in the last, you know, few decades. Uh, or even, you know, there's a post synodal apostolic exhortation, Verbum Domini, um, from Benedict the Sixteenth, which are which are constantly commenting on the fact that we need to read the scriptures according as the scriptures were intended to be read. So some things in the scriptures are intended to be read somewhat mythologically. And here we we, we mean myth uh, not in the sense of telling of lies, but in telling of deeper truths in the kind of Tolkien or Lewis way of myth telling. Um, it's a way by which to communicate a thing that doesn't abide by the strict dictate of kind of modern historiography. Um, so to recognize that the authors themselves were about a kind of myth making uh, and that we should read it as such without expecting of the text um, a kind of strict historical accuracy. So this would be true like of Genesis 1 through 11. 
Uh, so one and two being creation stories, three being the fall, four, you know, you get Cain and Abel and then things downstream of that with Noah, uh, Tower of Babel, and then you bring, it brings you all the way up to the doorstep of Abraham. And once you're there, you're in a kind of new dispensation when it comes to literary genre. Still, a lot of those texts are written well after the case. Um, and so they are a kind of mediated history, which also communicate to you something of the people that have come in between. Um, but they're, they, they aspire to tell a more historical story than the first 11 books, excuse me, the first 11 chapters of Genesis. I mean, the same thing obtains when we're talking about our reading of the New Testament. Like when Jesus speaks in parables, it's different than when he speaks in kind of discourse language. Uh, the one is to be understood, uh, you know, allegorically or kind of typologically or figuratively, and the other is to be understood more uh, kind of tropologically or morally. It's about applying those mysteries to the lives of the persons attending and then hearing through the sacred page. Um, so then how do we know that it's actually based on events? Uh, so that's through a variety of means, but there are, you know, it's multiple attestation. There are other people who speak of these events. Um, you know, archaeologically, we discovered the things that are described. Um, you know, scientifically, paleontologically, we find evidence of a great flood. Um, and then you think about like signs of credibility, the fact that there's this whole testimony of prophecy, which speaks to things that are to come and which do in fact come. Or like the testimony of miracles, the fact that Jesus Christ said he would rise from the dead and then he did rise from the dead. And then a bunch of people staked their lives on the fact of his having risen from the dead. Uh, and then the endurance of the things themselves. So like the church's teaching uh, and, um, you know, the holiness of her saints and things like that. They testify to the fact that something has happened uh, and that we can reliably believe that such a thing has happened in time and space. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like. There are different sciences that you can deploy, whether paleontology or archaeology um, or philology or rabbinic studies or, you know, there are a bunch of ways by which you can get at this for for multiple attestation. Just to say that that like what the scriptures are describing are described elsewhere, but the scriptures are describing them in peculiar fashion. Generally speaking, in Christian denominations, um, we have different beliefs about the Eucharist. How do we know that? When in the Bible, Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood. How do we know that this is what he meant and that the Eucharist is not just a symbol for his body and blood? I think that you can answer that uh, in three ways. So scripture, tradition, and uh, the teaching office of the church and the magisterium. So scripturally, you can make exegetical arguments that this is what he is about. So a lot is made of John 6. Uh, the bread of life discourse is pretty explicit. Um, and... When he first encounters opposition, he he moves from – I mean the Lord would have been speaking Aramaic, I suppose. It's recounted to us in Greek. Uh, but the Greek word for to eat is like phagain, and then the Greek word for to chew or to masticate is trogain. And the Lord actually switches from phagain to trogain in the midst of that discourse. So when you would think that he would use a word – um, you know, that were more symbolic or less offensive to his auditors. Instead, he uses one that's more bodily, uh, which is remarkable. Now, some people will say that those words are used interchangeably and we shouldn't make too terribly much of it. They, some people make similar arguments actually about Philane and Agapane in, um, the discourse with Peter. Certainly Benedict XVI makes that argument. So I don't, I don't think that we need to rely on that heavily, but it is the case that a lot of people left the Lord after his description of this teaching. And if it were something that were kind of benign, uh, and symbolic, it, it doesn't seem to be something for which one would leave. Um, and then, you know, you take the texts 
from the institution narratives, which are recounted in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then again in the first letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians. And there's this sense that these words ought to be preserved and transmitted, not that they're magical, but that they're sacramental. So there's remarkable consistency in, the, in that testimony, and there's like a real attention to the fact that, that something is happening here to which we need to direct our attention that's connected with the cross in peculiar fashion. And then you can go back to the Old Testament and show all of the ways in which this imagery was anticipated. You can certainly think of like, you know, the manna in the wilderness, uh, the way in which the Lord provided bread from heaven for the sustenance of his people and things along those lines. Then tradition, a lot of like what we believe is how the thing is received, which isn't to say that like you have neutral scriptural texts or the Lord was kind of figuring things out and then the church made a subsequent judgment about what that was. But it is to say that, that the church has a charism to receive the Lord's teaching, to receive the deposit of faith, uh, and that she has the Holy Spirit as a way by which to be guided into all truth. And certainly this has been the teaching as received from the earliest days of the church. You know, when you read uh, Justin Martyr and the way that he describes the original liturgy or, you know, some of the apologists' defense of the practice of Eucharistic communion. Um, clearly this is something that was thought very important, so important that it was kept a secret, you know, uh, the Gigiplina Arcani. It was something into which catechumens would only be initiated after they received their sacraments, you know, so they would leave after the, the liturgy of the word, before the liturgy of the Eucharist. And then the teaching office of the church. This this has been clarified for us by subsequent judgments by the church, which again has the authority to make such pronouncements by virtue of its participation in Christ's teaching office and headship. So like transubstantiation is defined solemnly at the fourth letter in council in 1215, you know, and these, these teachings are revisited in ecclesial documents as a way by which to assure um, that what has gone before has a place in the present because the church's teaching is irreformable in that. Uh, so, yes, yeah, I guess a basic a kind of sketch. Similar to what I was asking, asking before, in case you wanted to elaborate on it, where do we draw the line between taking passages in the Bible literally and figuratively? I think that there can be a kind of tendency to take everything literalistically, and then there can be a te- an opposite tendency to take everything figuratively. Um, so what we want to carve out is a kind of praxis for approaching the text as the text is intended to be approached. Um, so like, for instance, the creation narrative, uh, is it a, is a literal creation in six days? Well, the findings of modern science seem to suggest that there was a, you know, a big cosmic event like 13.8 billion years ago and that you know, you had hydrogen and then you had helium and then gradually you had more complex molecules or excuse me, more complex atomic particles. And then you go from there to, you know, inanimate kind of like things. And then you go from there to animate things and yada, yada. Okay. So, um, yes. What do I think? Uh, so I think that, uh, when Christians read the creation account, right, a lot of them think that it is a literal recounting of a six day creation. Uh, but then some voices in the tradition, like St. Augustine, for instance, say that that is not the case. So Augustine will comment, like, how do we tell the keeping of days when the sun is not created until the fourth day? So if a day is a 24-hour solar day, and if that is, you know, kept by the, uh, you know, the turning of the earth on its axis in such a time, then how do, how do you account for the, the measuring of the first three days? And so he says this, like, signs like this tend to indicate to us that what was what is being described is not intended to be read literally, but rather kind of figuratively. And then with modern historical critical tools, we, we can kind of determine from, 
you know, archaeological findings and philological findings and comparative studies, that these texts are written, you know, uh, they kind of come together over the course of like the 11th to the maybe 7th century BC. Um, so they're recounting something way, way, way after the fact. And what is it that they're trying to communicate? Well, they're working with texts that are available to them, like the Epic of Gilgamesh or the Enumi Elish. And they're purposefully interpreting those texts. They're transposing them into a new theological key. So they're showing that God is one. They're showing that God is not fractious and divided in his heavens. They're showing that creation is good. They're showing that creation was intended as such by God uh, and that evil uh, is beyond, in a certain sense, God's intention um, and that it is apart from his intention, but that he can use evil for the making of something good and that we are to blame for the introduction thereof, but that we are not irredeemable. So I think that you take – whether you're to read it literally or figuratively is dictated by the authorial intent. And the way that you get to the authorial intent is by deploying these historical critical methods and then reading the scriptures in the tradition of the church. So we are not self-made readers of the text, but rather we read with the readers who have gone before us. Um, so I think it's good kind of practically to err on the side of literal or because I think if you get into like a, a figurativizing vein, then you can explain a lot of things away in a way that can be kind of damaging to the faith and its integrity. Um, but that, you know, when you find a conflict of faith and science, we know the truth is one and that we should approach it as such. Um, and so, yeah, when, when, when they conflict or seem to conflict, then either faith has made a false judgment, you know, we've made a false judgment, or science has kind of gone beyond its competence. And so we can have a hope to reconcile the two. And then our reading of the passage should should follow in turn. If some Gospels were not directly written by the apostles, so, for example, the Gospel of Luke, how do we know that what they're saying is valid? Yeah. I mean, Luke is a very careful historiographer, so he is already addressing that claim. So he's a companion of Paul. Right. We think that Luke wrote Acts and then there's a couple of these we passages in Acts, which seems to testify to the fact that he was with Paul. It's mentioned, you know, a couple of times. Uh, and also in the in the introduction of both Luke and Acts, Luke has this historiographical kind of note where he says, I've consulted with eyewitnesses. You know, I'm working with basically apostles and apostolic men to get the best texts, to get the best stories, right, to get the best accounts. And I'm synthesizing them. Um, so he is relying upon eyewitness testimony. He's partaking of the apostolic preaching, and then he's doing his work, you know, to make sure that he has the best things available to him. Um, so there's a kind of question, you know, about which gospel came first. A lot of people seem to think that it's the gospel of Mark, and there's a lot of good historiographical evidence for that. Um, uh, some people hold that it's the gospel of Matthew. You know, there's a legitimate variety, and this thing has not been determined in the strict sense uh, beyond any shadow of a doubt. But what we're what we're looking at is how texts are received and then how texts are changed effectively with when we read the gospel of Luke, for instance, like how is he taking account of Mark? How might he be taking account of Matthew if it's his predecessor? Um, so yes, that's how we know that they're valid because uh, they're given by, by apostles or apostolic men who are relying upon the apostolic preaching and have the charism and grace, the kind of prophetic grace to transmit these teachings. Can you explain then the, the lost gospels and their validity and how come they're not included in the Bible, because I think everyone at some point has turned on the History Channel or something at some point. They're talking about the Lost Gospels and like the Gospel of Q and things like that. Sure. Yeah. So um, so Q is its own thing. Q is like a saying source. Uh, it's a way to account for. Um, yeah. So it's a way to account for sayings of Christ that are present 
in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke that aren't present in the Gospel of Mark. So that it's a two-source hypothesis of like Matthew and Luke would potentially have been – Matthew or Luke, depending on who you follow, would potentially have been relying upon Mark and Q. So that's a kind of scholarly hypothesis of something preexisting, um, some of the Gospels that would have been a source for the Gospels. But then the other – the kind of more nefarious thing are the Gnostic Gospels. So like the Gospel of uh, Judas – no – the Gospel of Thomas or the Infancy Gospel of Thomas are the kind of most famous ones. And they're called Gnostic Gospels because they're written by Gnostics. Okay, so Gnosticism being mostly like a second century Christian heresy. So it's a departure from the faith. Heresy being a post-baptismal obstinate denial of some article of the faith. Um, so what you're doing there is you're trying to change Christianity. But in so doing, you actually depart from within the fold of Christianity. Uh, so you're operating under some other auspice. So with the Gnostic Gospels, what you have are people kind of, you know, they're forming constituencies and they're trying to sway adherents. And often they're taking the names of apostles to lend credence to their texts. So it's not a thing that's written by Thomas, or it's not a an infancy narrative that's given by St. Thomas's kind of observation, but rather it's somebody downstream claiming him as a kind of inspiration or, um, yeah, as, as an author in a loose sense, so as to lend credence to their text. Um, and when you read these things, you, you see that they're very much crazy um, because they're written by people. I don't mean to be like you know flippant, but they're written by people who are about a very different thing. And so the church judge the church knows about them. Like Saint Irenaeus of Lyon, for instance, writes the Against Heresies, the Adversus Heresis, and he knows about all these texts. And truth be told, the reason that we know about these texts is due in large part to Christians who preserve the memory of these errors so that we would not repeat them. Um, so these these things are being received, they are being judged, and they are being ruled out. Um, because they are not in keeping with the life of Christ. They are not in keeping with Christian doctrine. And so the church can make such a judgment. And it's not just like, you know, we've got a club and we want to keep outsiders out. It's that these things are really actually about uh, a bad end. And um, the church is not like kind of squirreling them away in the bottom of her archives, lest they be discovered and we be embarrassed. I mean, the church is actually presenting these to the people of God and saying like, this is crazy. So don't be misled by these people. You know, many false prophets will come, many false Christs, but be not led astray. There will be wars and rumors of wars. Uh, so, yeah. I know I've been wanting to get people's opinion on this, especially yours, but the book of Revelation, it's quite mysterious, has a whole bunch of different interpretations. And I know I have heard that some of the events that have happened um, in the book of Revelation um, or that is described in the book of Revelation has already occurred. How do you think is the best way to, I guess, go about reading it? Is any of this true? Yeah. I think with with definitive eschatological claims, definitive end time claims, uh, the best posture that a Christian can observe is of hope, right, of real hope. What does it mean to be hopeful? It means to make use of the means that the Lord affords for the salvation of your soul and of those who lie within your care. Um, so we should be making frequent reception of Holy Communion. We should be going to, you know, the sacrament of confession. We should be fasting. You know, we should be, uh, studying the faith. We should be, you know, like cultivating rich, good friendships. Uh, so that way we do not fall away. You know, we, we should be begging God for the grace of perseverance, but we cannot pronounce on the time or place. You know, no one knows, neither the angels nor even the son, only the father knows. Um, and there have been Christian denominations who have made pronouncements about the end times, uh, specifically like Seventh-day Adventists are, are, are somewhat famous for this. And it, and it constantly involves backpedaling. So I think we should be very leery of anything that claims to um, 
to have certain knowledge about the eschaton, unless that is, you know, God. So um, the book of Revelation is quite mysterious, and it's, you know, it's uh, eschatological, right? It's apocalyptic. It describes an end times catastrophe. A lot of people think that it was written in light of the Neronian persecution of the church in Rome, so that what it is is a kind of hyper-allegorization of those those things, but with further application in the Christian community, um, which I think we can appreciate by virtue of the fact that we're still reading it now. Um, so I don't think that uh, – yeah, we should we should use it as a predictive tool, but we can engage with it, again, using historical critical methods to examine how it might map on with events, you know, like events that have come down to us about the first century and then how that has practical application for us in the spiritual order. But I mean, even in the, you know, in the practical order and the temporal order too. Uh, so yes, I think it's a, it's a book that should be read well, uh, and that it should be read frequently and that it should be read with that kind of disposition. How do you, I guess, refute the argument that, um, the foreshadowing that has been done in the Bible from the Old Testament going into the New Testament, that once the Bible was written, people didn't go back and edit it in order for the events that happened in the New Testament for those to have come to fruition, if that makes any sense. How do you refute that? I, th- I think that's just you, you rely on real textual scholarship to show that we have established editions of some of these texts antecedent to the events that they describe. Kind of classic one is it seems that the Gospel of Mark was written before 70 AD, and it looks a lot like the the description in Mark 13 of the destruction of the temple uh, is is remarkably like what happened. I mean, it differs in a couple of details, but it's remarkably like what happened. Um, also, you can think about the various prophecies of Christ. So we have established, you know, like established a timeline for a lot of the texts that speak to the coming of Christ, and those things antedate Christ by sometimes centuries. You can think of, um, you know, for instance, prophecies in the book of Malachi about the forerunner, Malachi 3, my messenger, Hoangelos, uh, and the way that those things, that, the, that those images are adopted in our kind of description of John the Baptist and how they hearken back to descriptions of Elijah, right? So there's this real deep um, kind of textual interweaving that's at stake. Also, the 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 abundance of prophecy in Christianity far outweighs the prophecy present in any other faith tradition. It's kind of staggering if you look at it by comparison. Um, so, and then just like how a, how a typological reading is not the type of thing that um, will necessarily overwhelm a reader at the outset. It's not the type of thing where an atheist will look at a typological reading of scripture and then admit, admit you know, like kind of at face value that this must be true. But it's the kind of it's the kind of thing, it's like a spiritual discipline that as you do it, um, as you kind of grow into it uh, with a contemplative disposition, with a contemplative mindset, that you it works on you. It kind of forms you and shapes you and opens up before you, you know, kind of avenues and opportunities for the reading of Scripture, which previously you could not have seen or acknowledged. Um, so I think that, like, you're, you're always – when if somebody wants to refute the foreshadowing in the Bible, they can come up with some explanatory way by which to defeat – but I don't think that like apologetically we want to get ourselves involved in those arguments because a lot of the technical competence required to substantiate those claims is beyond us. Um, but what we can do is kind of point to the place that a typological reading of Scripture has kind of had in our own lives, um, yeah, and just get the conversation more on even footing. What is the Dominican way 
of approaching the Bible. I know I asked Father Andrew what's the priestly way, and I talked to a biblical scholar and I asked him what's the scholarly way. So what's the Dominican way of approaching it? So St. Thomas Aquinas says in the third part of the Summa, which describes the life of Christ, uh, he says that all of the deeds and sufferings of Christ are saving. Um, so I think that like what we're looking to with a Dominican way of approaching the Bible are the mysteries that are actually described therein. Um, so as to be shaped by, saved by, formed by, healed by, elevated by those mysteries. So it's a kind of mystagogy, right? The idea being that um, the Lord himself takes you by the hand, by the instrumentality of the very mysteries themselves, and leads you up, you know, kind of leads you into the very life of God. Um, so we so we read it with the intent of being conformed to Christ, of being made like unto God. So it's, I guess you could call it a kind of transformative or a deifying way of reading the scriptures or a mystagogical way of reading the scriptures. And I think that that's, that's the kind of way that's um, implicit within our liturgical life and our life of contemplation, which has aspects of both prayer and study. Yeah. Are there any aids that you think young people, so like I'm trying to reach the 18 to 28 year olds. Um, are there any aids that you think would really help young people approach the Bible, read the Bible and make it less intimidating? And I guess most importantly, stick with it. I think a lot of us get excited about, yes, today I'm going to start reading it. And then by the time it gets to be three weeks from now, because our attention span is, doesn't exist anymore. It just, you know, the, the desire is, I guess, gone. So I would say that there's a priority and that you read – so you read the Bible. I would say read the whole New Testament every two years, okay? Read the whole Old Testament maybe every four years, okay? I think that's a realizable goal. And I think you just kind of space – you kind of chunk it out. You can do it – you know, like you have the book itself, chunk it out for you or you just – um you know, download an app and then you can tell the app how long you want to take to read the text and then it'll it'll chunk it out for you. So I think that you have to start with the scriptures. There's no substitute for reading the scriptures. Um, and then I think that reading reading the scriptures in the context of the liturgy is the way that the church principally intends you to receive them. Um, and so to have some kind of liturgical aid like Magnificat um, as a way to engage with the readings uh, prior to Mass or at some point during the day if you aren't able to go to a daily Mass um, and then read some small reflection on them that's already been curated for you. So that way there isn't too much effort that you have to expend in the process. But it's kind of – it's something that's easy but not easy in the way that your smartphone's easy. Easy in the way that you know kind of demands something of you and shapes you. All right. As it should. As it should. How does the church pick what readings to use during Mass? And why is it different from the Latin Mass? Like I know my dad loves going to Latin Mass, and I know he'll usually bring the Missalette even though we go to the Novus Ordem during the weekend. So I was just curious. At the Second Vatican Council with, you know, the Sacrosanctum Concilium, which is the dogmatic or the constitution on the, the church's liturgy, uh, and then the subsequent formulation of the Novus Ordo in the years succeeding, uh, there was a deliberate intentional move to expand the lectionary. The reason for which was so that Catholics would hear more of the scriptures. In the Latin Mass, you hear an epistle, Right which is usually taken from St. Paul, thus epistle, sometimes taken you know, in, in other liturgical seasons from a prophet like Isaiah and Advent. And then you hear from the Gospels. And you hear from a, a relatively narrow range of texts. So that the principal purpose in the Novus Ordo expanding the lectionary was so that you hear more of uh, the, the scriptures over the course of the liturgical year. So that the Sundays are on a three-year cycle, and then the weekdays, uh, the Gospels for the weekdays are on a one-year cycle, but then the first readings are on a two-year cycle. Um, so over the course of three years going to Sunday Mass or over the course of two years going to weekday Mass, you end up hearing about 95 percent of the New Testament. And then you end up hearing about like I think it's between 10 and 15 percent of the Old Testament. 
check those numbers. Um, but you're hearing a, a good bit of scripture. So let's say that in the Ignatius RSV, you know, scripture's 1,250 pages long. Uh, you're getting, I don't know, maybe like 300, 350 pages. So you're getting a good bit. You know, you're getting uh, about a quarter, a little more than a quarter. Um, so the idea being that scripture is the principal monument of the tradition. It's the soul of sacred theology. It's God's inspired word and that we should be fed by that word um, in the vernacular in a way that we can digest um, and that those readings should be arranged typologically. So with the weekday mass readings, usually there isn't an intelligible connection between the first reading and the gospel because they're both on continuous reads. So you're just you're cruising through books in both cases. But on Sundays, uh, there is there is a deliberate connection between the first reading often and the gospel because they are curated for the event. The second reading is typically read on a continuous cycle, except in certain liturgical seasons. So you're supposed to read it typologically. You're supposed to see the New Testament in the Old and the Old Testament in the New. Um, and so I think, yes, yeah, just precisely with that intent. Why do you think Catholics aren't known for their Bible literacy as opposed to other Christians? So the Bible is a difficult book to read, and it admits of very many bad interpretations. And I suspect that many Catholics along the way were discouraged from reading the Bible for fear of the errors into which they would fall. Whereas it's always been pro- part of the Protestant tradition to kind of get back to the text. You know, it's it's always been more kind of uh, popular, I suppose, in its approach to uh, Christian doctrine, uh, the exegesis thereof, you know, and its promulgation. So, like, uh, you can think of, you know, certain movements in Germany immediately after, you know, 1517 with the Anabaptists. It was very, it was very much like a kind of popular desire to have access to the text, to interpret the text, right? Um, to appropriate the text. So I think that's just, that's just part, part of the Protestant tradition is to get into it. And part of the Second Vatican Council's intent was to redirect Catholics' attention to the real benefits of engaging with Scripture. And I think that that's, that's one of the goals of the Council, which we have seen effectuated, um, that there is a great, great desire on the part of many Christians, Catholics, to engage with the sacred page, to read it well, to go to Bible studies, you know, to use these different programs on form.org. Um, things like that. So I, I think that that is that's something that's being addressed in the last you know fifty fifty five years, uh, helpfully. Why do you think most people don't actually read the Bible? I feel like nowadays it's more so uh, different reflection books, which is still great, but it's not necessarily sitting down with the Bible and trying to absorb as much as you can. So I think because it's hard to read the Bible. Um, so St. Gregory the Great talks about how material goods differ from immaterial goods. In the case of material goods, they have an initial payoff that's pretty satisfying, uh, but our appreciation of them or our enjoyment of them tends to decline over the course of our engagement with them. And you can just think of like foods that you used to like as a kid and your palate's kind of matured, and as a result, you, you can't really eat them without cringing. Um, whereas with immaterial goods, spiritual goods, he says, initially they're very forbidding. They're very difficult. Um, but what we come to discover is as we engage with them, they prove more and more and more delightful. And there's no real upper bound. The delight therein does not decline, but rather kind of goes from, from strength to strength. But in order to appreciate that, we need to uh, employ a kind of discipline or a kind of asceticism because our appetites need to be trained to desire, to love, to delight in arduous goods, right? Uh, because if we just content ourselves with lower goods, then our appetites, uh, will, our loves will be exhausted in those things. They'll be dispersed and dissipated such that we never actually mount to the height of our powers. 
So I think that in order to read the Bible, it's not sufficient just to want to read the Bible and then to start reading the Bible. Uh, but I think that one, there are a bunch of sacrifices that need to come with that decision, right? The decision to like not look at your phone after 10 p.m., uh, the decision to not just read every book that people give you because you feel like you need to get it off their shelf and tell them, you know, to be a bit choosier. Um, the decision to kind of uh, like discipline your engagement with, uh, you know, like television, like movie shows and, 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 and whatever you call the other things, movies, right? Um, so that your kind of your desire for contemplation, like the way in which you gaze on reality isn't exhausted by other things so that you can kind of save something of that contemplative gaze for the sacred page so that it can transfix you, engross you and like subsequently lead you deeper and deeper into its, uh, into its contemplation. So, yeah, that's a thought. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing I can guarantee you that I will be replaying this episode because there's so much packed into this interview. I did want to give a quick heads up about the next few episodes before we wrap up. The next two interviews are lengthier than normal, and so I have decided that I'm going to experiment by dividing each one into two parts instead of doing an hour and a half long episode or maybe even longer. So the next episode will be episode 3.1 part 1, and then the following week will be episode 3.1 part 2. The website is live, folks. I'm not kidding. And no, this is not a drill. The hard work has finally paid off. TYCpodcast.com. That is TYCpodcast.com is now live. So go check it out. Most importantly, you can now send me your questions. On the homepage, scroll down to the bottom and submit questions that you have. You do have to submit your email and your name, but as I promised during the prologue, everything is anonymous, so I won't be disclosing any of your information on the show unless for some reason you really want me to. If it also makes you feel any better, the only reason why I am requiring your email and your name is so that way I don't get spammers emailing me questions that have absolutely nothing to do with this show. So, just letting you know. So, share it with your friends and encourage those who you think are struggling with certain topics to send them my way. Also, if you don't follow our Instagram, it is at theyoungcatholic underscore podcast. I only use Instagram for the latest updates about the show because I don't want to add to the noise that social media can be. So, don't feel like by following the account, you're going to be bombarded with posts. I hope you have an amazing Thanksgiving. I really encourage you to reflect on the blessings that God has given you this year. I know that is something that I will definitely be doing. So I will be talking to you guys next week. And until then, from one young Catholic to another, preach the truth as if you had a million voices. It is the silence that kills the world. St. Catherine of Siena.